Our U.S. military and military veterans are our country's greatest assets. But service comes with a price. Post-traumatic stress is our enemy, and our mission today is Operation Healing Heroes. Hey everyone, I am Jay Garstecki, and welcome to another edition of the Operation Healing Heroes podcast, where we document the lives of our U.S. military veterans one story at a time. In addition, we provide resources for veterans and family members struggling with post-traumatic stress to get the help that they deserve. Also, be sure to check out our TV show, Operation Healing Heroes TV, on Discovery Channel, Waypoint TV, Wired to Fish TV, Amazon Prime, and YouTube. Today, we're going to be featuring 20-plus-year Army veteran John Arroyo, a Green Beret who was awarded the Soldier's Medal for Heroism that went above and beyond the call of duty. When we come back, join me as I play a YouTube video provided by the 700 Club that depicts the events of Wednesday, April 2nd, 2014 in Fort Hood, Texas. Operation Healing Heroes podcast is made possible by Great Clips, the world's largest salon brand with over 4,400 locations in the U.S. and Canada. Great Clips, it's gonna be great. And by Sure Microphones, the leader in audio electronics since 1925. Visit them at www.sure.com. My friend calls me and she said, did you know there's a shooting? And I was like, oh my gosh, don't tell me John was shot. 30 minutes later, his captain shows up at the door. I went numb and he's on the other side knocking and knocking and I'm shaking my head no because I don't want to hear it. And he's, open the door, open the door. He's alive. Angel's husband, platoon leader John Arroyo, was rushed to Darnall Army Medical Center, where two surgeons immediately began operating to save his life. They soon discovered that a 45 caliber bullet had severed John's jugular vein and lodged deep within the nerves of his right shoulder. One of the physicians was ENT Dr. Alex McKinley. Close proximity gunshot wound to the neck with an expanding hematoma is a grave prognosis. We knew that it was go time. We made an incision over the area to try to control the bleeding. Once we stopped that, we exhaled a bit, but there was still bright red bleeding, and so there was additional injuries. We looked and we knew that the bullet had gone through his what's called voice box, the area where your Adam's apple essentially is, your vocal cords, shattered his thyroid cartilage. And we knew that there was probably some significant damage to that area of his neck. To help John breathe, doctors inserted a tracheostomy tube in his neck. Then, Angel was finally able to see him. They took me back there. It was not my husband. His head was bigger than a basketball. His tongue was sticking out. It wouldn't even go back in. I just kept praying that everything would be okay. The following day, John was placed in a medically induced coma and transferred to Scott and White Memorial Hospital for additional care. There, doctors told Angel their prognosis for John. At that time, we knew, A, he had lost a lot of blood, 
B, that his voice was probably going to be different because of the amount of injury that was sustained in the voice box, and we didn't know if his voice would ever be normal again. And then C, his arm and the movement of his arm based on where that bullet went, we had no idea if that was going to come back either. And they said he won't be able to talk because he's in a medical coma, so he's got to stay asleep until Saturday. And so I went beside him and I grabbed his hand and I was telling him I love him. And he woke up. When I first see my wife, I tried to sit up and I tried to talk to her. I just wanted her to know that I was going to be okay. I told her father before he passed that I would take care of her. And it means everything. I couldn't speak, and I was writing on a whiteboard. He's on medicine. He wouldn't be spelling right. Like, I love you would be I-H-A. Just crazy. I didn't know I could love him as much as I did. Two days after the operation, when I first saw him, he was doing his best to speak. He'd put his finger on his tracheostomy tube. He had an intelligible voice, which is very unusual in this kind of situation. We knew right away that he was a fighter, and we knew that faith was a big part of who he was and that he believed 100% that God was behind him and that he was going to get through his injuries. As John slowly recovered his voice, he began sharing what happened that day. We have an active shooter currently on Fort Hood. Just be advised, they're saying that the vehicle was a dark Toyota Camry. I've been in combat several times. Being a Green Beret, you just know, you just know what shots fired sound like. And as I was looking where the shots were fired, a vehicle pulls up. The next shot I heard, I was hit. John had just parked his car outside the 1st Medical Brigade when a 45 caliber slug ripped through his throat. I see someone walking towards me in the distance. The individual gets close to me within 10 feet, and I realize that it's the shooter. Jesus, help. And that's the only thing I could try to muster, was Jesus, help. Probably the simplest prayer I've ever prayed, but it was the most profound, because he stopped, looked around, and then walked into a building. I was just paralyzed. I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that he didn't see me. It was God. God shielded me. Eight minutes after the first shot, three medics came running to the scene. Gripping his throat, John called out to warn them. I yelled back to them from across the parking lot, no, I've been shot, there's a shooter. Army Specialist Ivan Lopez opened fire, killing three people and wounding 16 others. Confronted by military police in a parking lot, he then turned the gun on himself. They believe Specialist Ivan Lopez had an argument with a fellow soldier before the shooting. The suspect had been evaluated for post-traumatic stress disorder and was receiving treatment for depression and anxiety. In just a few weeks, John fully regained his voice and was eventually transferred to Brook Army Medical Center, where he continues to receive therapy for his right arm. Last year, John was awarded the Soldier's Medal for heroism above and beyond the call of duty, for warning others on the day of the shooting. And today, 
he serves as an aide to a two-star general at Fort Sam Houston. When everything was said and done, and I look at the sequence of events between where John was shot, the timing of how quickly he was taken from the location to the hospital, and then being rushed right to the operating room with two surgeons who were ready to go, being able to stop that bleeding, all of that in such a short period of time, I think it's nothing short of a miracle. I don't believe in luck. It's Christ. It's God, and I can't explain it any better than that. At the end of the day, I should never even be here. They said I would have a trach in my neck for a minimum of six months. It was out in two months. They said, we don't know if you ever talk again. I'm talking to you right now. They said that we don't know what's going on with your arm. My arm moves today. There's no limits when it comes to God. Wow, that was a powerful uh, interview. And uh, I'm, I'm thankful that the 700 Club allowed us to use that in our podcast to, to paint a picture of, uh, of John and his story. And John, I'd like to welcome you to the show and say thank you for, uh, for everything that you've done for our country, your service, but uh, just welcome you and, and thanks for continuing to share the information with us. Well, hey, thanks so much. And, uh, you know, thank you for having me. And I can't wait to share some hope with those who are going to be here in this podcast. Amen to that, brother. Uh, I certainly appreciate it. Just bringing the listeners up to speed, I, I wanted to just kind of give a little bit of your background, and I'm going to talk to you about, uh, you know, life growing up and that type of thing. But um, you joined the military when you were just 20 years old uh, as an enlisted soldier, uh, went on to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, uh, where you were with the 82nd Airborne Division. Uh, you became an Army Special Forces Green Beret in 2004. You served two tours in Afghanistan, one tour in Iraq. Um, and then, of course, the, the Fort Hood shooting. Um, since the shooting at Fort Hood, uh, you and your wife, Angel, co-authored a book called Attack at Home. Uh, I want to talk about that a little bit. But um, to, to start us off, would you mind giving us an idea of, of where you grew up and what life was like growing up? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I think a lot of people join the military because, you know, it's go to war, go to jail. Or some people join the military because they're patriotic. Well, for me, John Arroyo joined the military because it was go to war or go to jail. And this is what life was like for me. Uh, and I bet you that there's a lot of your listeners and there's a lot of veterans that can relate to what I'm about to say. My dad died when I was five years old. So I grew up in a home with no father. Uh, well, I'll say this. I had men in my life, but I didn't have my biological father. And there's something that happens in a young boy's life when his biological father is not there. And, one of, and, and some of the other things that happened in my life that ultimately played out in my identity and, and who I had become as I was growing up, right? Because a child, a young, a young boy uh, at five years old losing their father is, is on an identity search. And your your home, your father, your dad in your home, your biological father should be a reflection. And for me, I'm a man of faith. I'm a I'm a man of the Christian faith. And so the way I believe it and the way I see it, and, and according to what the Bible tells me, is that my father is made in the image and likeness of God. And so he should have been that reflection to me in my home, but he wasn't there. And so what my mother and my grandmother were there and I had a, and I was raised in a good home, but because my 
father wasn't there. And, and I also never once heard that I remember, I never once heard, you're my son and who I am well pleased. You're my son, I love you. I was never once affirmed by my father. And so what happened is my mother couldn't give me what my father was supposed to. My grandmother couldn't give me what my father was supposed to. And what I did is I went out looking for affirmation. I hungered for affirmation. Um, and my friends who were a bunch of young kids like me became my source of affirmation. And what, what did that look like? Yeah. Well, in today's environment, in today's environment, it looks like likes, right? It looks like likes. Wow. But then back in the, in the eighties and nineties, when I was growing up in the Tony Hawk era, you know, skateboarding and, and I grew up in Whittier, California. So that's, that's originally where I'm from. I grew up in Whittier, California. Uh, which is just in between downtown Los Angeles and Anaheim, which is where Disneyland is. And so I, I'm kind of in the middle there. And uh, But my friends became the source of my affirmation. And and after the Tony Hawk days, we grew up, all of a sudden this gangster rap came on scene, right? Ice Cube and NWA and, um, you know, F the police. And, mm-hmm. and it was just, you know... Um, you know, the chronic and Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. I, I grew up in the Los Angeles when that was just coming out. And and my friends, they thought gangs were cool. So after skateboarding, all of a sudden they just started seeing gangs and they thought the gangs were cool. I didn't I wasn't interested in being a gang member. But what what was I looking for? What was I craving? Mm-hmm. Affirmation. So what I wanted my friends to think about me was that I was cool. Right. I needed them to affirm me because I never got it at home. And so I became a gang member. I got jumped into a gang when I was in seventh grade. By ninth grade, I was a teenage father. Oh and then God. in twelfth and then in twelfth grade, someone introduced me to methamphetamines. You know, I often tell people how many of you have ever been wounded by people that you trusted? Well, that seven hundred club uh audio clip just told you that I was wounded by someone that I would have given my life for in April, 2014. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't, that wasn't the first time I was wounded. The first time my soul and my spirit was wounded was one when my daddy drank himself to death. Wow. And the second, the second is when one, someone that loved me said, Hey, why don't you try this? When I asked, Hey, what is that? Try it. There's so many people have been wounded by people that love them when they said try this smoke this snort that and because of that because of those people that love you you, how how do you be wounded by someone you trusted um you know if you think about it there's still people today that i know that are in my life that have never recovered because somebody that loved them told them try this and so at 12th grade 12th grade, I was uh, introduced to methamphetamines. Uh, and I, I'm not saying that that person was a bad influence on me because I was equally a bad influence. But, it, you know, it was by someone that loved me. And I got into methamphetamines in my senior year in high school. And after high school, my life was just spiraling, you know. But good thing, I had a grandmother that, that was a prayer warrior. She prayed. And then I had a sister that saw right through the addictions. And I want to say this. If someone has an addiction, 
the world sees right through it, except for the person that has the addiction. They think nobody knows, but everybody knows. And my sister saw right through it. And she said, you need to get out of here or you'll be a loser the rest of your life. And that is what my life was like before I joined the military. Wow. What a powerful story. <laughs> uh, that's incredible. So you mentioned your sister. Were there any other siblings? Yes. Yeah, so I have, uh, so my oldest sister is Donna. And then I have an older brother named Steven. And then I was, I was the baby for about 12 years. And then my mom later uh, with my stepfather uh, had my little sister Monique. So there's four of us all together and I'm, I'm almost in the middle. Yeah. Wow. And was there any uh, military background there or was this uh, just, again, I, I know you had mentioned how the military was something that you had to go into to stay out of jail, but did you have any military in your family? I did. I did. I had an uncle that was in the Air Force, but like he was a reservist and I didn't really have a lot of contact with him. So I would honestly say not any kind of lineage that we would say, like I joined the military because, you know, grandpa or dad did it. So. Yeah. No, for me, for me, I joined the military because my sister said, you'll be a loser the rest of your life if you don't get out of here. Wow. And and to your point, I mean, like you said, everybody around you always sees through uh, the addictions and things. And and we always say, you know, there's help out there if you want it. There's, there's people, there's organizations, the help is there, but um, you can't be helped unless you, one, you admit you have the problem and two, you actually want to get the help. And uh yeah, it's uh, it's a pretty powerful story. So, uh, basically, you you I assume you graduated high school and and from that point just went directly into the military. Well, and good question. I had never crossed an academic stage in junior high or high school. In junior high, they just passed me along, um, and I you know I often tell people when I do public speaking, I said I guess they just passed me along because they didn't want a twenty one year old eighth grader with a beard. You know? <laughs> uh, and then when I got into high school, uh, that's when I had a child at ninth grade and, you know, going back and forth with his mom, you know, uh, I got to the end of high school and I, and I was one class short from actually crossing the stage and I didn't, I wasn't able to get it. And in the summer, I had to go to summer school after, and, um, this is how I made it through the teacher's assistant during that class gave me the answers to the final exam that I needed to take to pass that class. And that's how I made it. And, and I'm just being, I'm just being utterly transparent. Wow. I, I wasn't probably nearly failed almost everything in my life up until just recently. I, or I had, or I had to recycle it and do it again. I mean, I'm telling you when, when God saved me, he didn't first save me from an active shooter. He first saved me from me. Wow, amazing! And how how deep did the um, the gang roots go? I mean, I, I hear sometimes, you know, from people, uh, you know, nowadays gangs are pretty prevalent still, right? Thirty years, forty years later, and that um, you know, it's difficult to get out of that, uh, to get out of that spiraling, uh, you know, accountability in life. It's just horrible. So, how did you get out of that? Just by getting into the military? I would say, yeah. Uh, and I, I just kind of grew out of it. I kind of changed my friends and kind of changed the direction. I stopped hanging out with those guys. And, and it's not like they came knocking on the door and said, hey, you owe me your life, you know, maybe maybe in the cartels and things like that. Um, but where I was at in the gang that I was in, uh, no one was beating down my door saying, you know, 
Um, you know, where are you? You're, you're supposed to be accountable. But I will say this. When you live that gang lifestyle, um, people people recognize it. And, and so the people that are active in gangs, just because you may not be an act, active in a gang, they still approach you and, they, and they'll ask you, hey, where are you from? Or something like that. And uh, I would say, to answer your question, it was leaving the it was leaving for the military and getting that transformation is what really got me out of the gang life and and even when I got to the military, I'll say this when I got there i i I wanted to dress different right I wanted a fresh start mm-hmm. i wanted I wanted a, a new beginning which is what my sister wanted me to accomplish and what and what I wanted to accomplish because I did have a young son, you know I wanted to give him what i didn't i I never received. And so I was really going there to, to really grab it by the reins and, and get the discipline and make the transformation. As you said, some people have to accept it. I was there to accept it. And I remember meeting people. So I come from Los Angeles. I remember meeting people from New York and, and Texas and Arizona and New Mexico. And they were coming. And then they wanted to act like they were in gangs again. Like just the way they dressed and the way they conducted themselves. And I remember asking them, you know, several of them, like, are you from a gang? And some of them would say, no. And I, and I, and I was like, then why are you acting like this? Like, why are you at this point in your life wanting to become a gang member when you should really be growing up? But what happened is weren't the gang member, maybe their uncle or their brother was. And so what they did is they showed up they were no longer on the streets of Los Angeles where it meant something to be a gang member. Now they were in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Nobody knows who they are. So mm-hmm. they could be whoever they wanted to be. But I actually saw people coming in and it, I was kind of disappointed to see that. Wow. Wow. That's, that's pretty amazing. So you touched upon real quickly, uh, the fact that you had a son in the ninth grade. Um, and how old were you when you actually joined the military? So I had a son in the ninth grade. I, I was 15 when I when he was born. And actually, my birthday was September 10th, and he was born September 30th. So I was just just coming out of my 14th year. Wow. Um, and then and then I was 20 years old when I joined the military. So and, and I'll say this. Uh, I'll say this real quick. I failed the ASVAB. You know that entry exam to take the to, you got to score 30. I scored a 29. The first time when I went to the to the to the recruiter, you got to score 30 on that exam. I scored a 29. I, I actually wasn't almost didn't qualify. Went back later and scored a 31. Wow. On a test that you need a 30. I mean, I'm telling you, I, I got in by the skin of my teeth and by grandma's prayers. That's amazing. So um, how difficult was it to to leave uh, your five-year-old son and, and head into the military? It was really tough. Uh, I had never been away from home. I'd never been away from him, even though, even though we didn't live together. Right. So, but I was still in his life and it, and it was tough. And, and I was trying to make a life with his mother. We were, you know, I was trying to do that. Um, so it was really tough and I had never been away from home. I was still, I was a mama's boy, even though I got myself into all this mess, I was still a mama's boy and I'd never been on an airplane before. Now it'd be my first time on an airplane. First time being away from home. And, uh, it was really, it was tough to leave. Wow. 
We're going to take a short break. Uh, when we come back, I'm going to ask if you wouldn't mind uh, telling me about uh, becoming a Green Beret in the military and, and your three deployments. We'll talk about military life here in just a second. Uh, again, John, thank you for sharing your story with us, and uh, we'll be right back. Operation Healing Heroes podcast is made possible by Great Clips, the world's largest salon brand with over 4,400 locations in the U.S. and Canada. Great Clips, it's gonna be great. And by Sure Microphones, the leader in audio electronics since 1925. Visit them at www.sure.com. And welcome back. Uh, we're talking to John Arroyo, who uh, just shared with us uh, his childhood growing up wasn't, uh, I'd say, rainbows and unicorns by any means. Uh, but uh, that the fact that you uh, didn't end up uh, in jail, uh, you ended up going into the military with the, the help of your sister. Um, tell us about military life. Uh, what was that like? Uh, you did three deployments. Uh, you became a Green Beret. It's got to be pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, well, you know, again, I, I joined the military because it was go to war, go to jail. So I, I showed up uh, in the 82nd Airborne Division, uh, December of 1998. And I actually, and I'll say this, and, and I just previously mentioned it, I scored a 31. So I wasn't going in there to be the rocket scientist. I was, you know, I was going in with a, just to really get a skill and some discipline. And then I wasn't expecting the, the military to be a career. I was planning to do three, four years, turn around and go home. And so when I was at, you know, the recruiting station and selecting my job, I said, Hey, look, do you guys have truck driving? Because that's, you know, all, good majority of the men in my family were truck drivers. And so, you know, my recruiter says, Oh no, brother, it's not truck driving. It's motor transport operator. Well, okay. Well, that's, that's pretty highfalutin for dude. You're a truck driver. So I started out in the 82nd Airborne Division in 1998, December 98, when I got there, is an Army truck driver. We, we were airborne truck drivers, and it was pre-9-11, so there was no war going on. I think the only thing that was going on during that time was uh, trips to Kosovo. Mm -hmm. And uh, But they treated us like we were the infantry, even though we were truck drivers, and so I just remember, you know, just running and, and you know, oh no, I'll say this. You remember that discipline I was looking for? Yeah. I didn't have to look for it anymore. <laughs> it slapped it, you in the face, huh? It found me. It found me. And I often tell my wife, I said, hey, look, if something ever happens and I come up missing, just go swab Fort Bragg for my DNA because it's all over that place. I, I blood, sweat, and teared all over that place. But, you know, here's what I found. I found love. The love that I was looking for in a father I found men and women that became my leaders because as a truck driver, it's a co-ed, it's a co-ed uh, military occupation. And I had great leaders that just began to, they were, it was tough love, but they loved us and they, and they pushed us. And man, and actually I want to say that that was the foundation of my career. You know, you, you may see it on the news or you may watch, like you may hear on the clip, the 700 club that, that I was a lieutenant. I actually retired as an army captain. And, you know, you got to have a college degree to, to get that. Every bit of, every bit of who I became as a soldier, as a man, as a leader was all the foundation of that, who I am started in that first unit, that first organization, those leaders were 
the foundation of who I became as a man, as a leader, as a father, and then ultimately as, a, as an army officer. And so, uh, you know, I did that. I did truck driving for a couple of years and I was like, man, you know what? I think, I think this military thing is pretty cool. I think I'm going to try another, you know, do another term. And so one of my friends was getting an opportunity to go to college and I wanted to do something like he was doing. And so I studied up, you can, you can take an exam to, uh, raise your your aptitude scores right because you know when you go in there and you're scoring a 31 your aptitude scores are, are not you know not, not blowing it out of the water right they're, they're pretty low so i i went to this course that gives you the ability to raise your aptitude scores so that you can potentially change your mos or change your job into something that may be more beneficial for what your retirement or getting out or you know a better skill than just truck driving and uh so i did that and around that same time, I saw these Army Rangers and Green Berets because Fort Bragg is, is home home of special operations. And during that time, there was two special forces groups. There was 3rd Special Forces Group um, and 7th Special Forces Group. You had the 82nd Airborne Division. You had Rangers all over the place. And then, you know, Fort Bragg is also home to Army Delta Force, even though you're not supposed to say that. <laughs> so I remember seeing all these all these warriors and and. And here's what I want to say. Remember, I said something earlier. I said I was never affirmed at home by my father, so I needed to be affirmed by my peers. That orphan heart of never being affirmed at home, it didn't go anywhere. All it did is it just changed uniforms. It went from being this young gang member to all of a sudden just hiding itself in camouflage in esprit de corps. And that, and so when, when all my peers were saying, Hey, those green berets, they're the best wanting my peers to do about me. I needed them to affirm me. So I was looking for my peers to say, Hey, John, let us pat you on the back. Cause you're the best. I said it earlier. It looks like likes mm-hmm. In today's social media environment. If I post something, it looks like likes. That's how young kids and sometimes adults now, that's how they receive their affirmation. And you see it in the, you see it in the um, selfie generation, mm-hmm. right? So I w- that was John Arroyo's selfie generation. I needed people to affirm me. So when everybody was saying the Green Berets are cool, I, was, I started telling people I was going to be a Green Beret. I had no intentions of becoming a Green Beret. All I wanted was people to say, oh, man, you're so cool for, you know, going to try out. All I wanted was their affirmation until one day one of my coworkers comes up to me and he says, hey, go go either go to selection to try out to be a Green Beret or shut your mouth. Hmm. And I was like, "Okay, I guess I'm going to try out because I I ran my mouth long enough. So I started selection. So the, the selection process to be a Green Beret. Uh, their course is called SFAS, so Special Forces Selection and Assessment. I started September 10th, 2001. Wow. What, what, what actually? So the next day is September 11th, 2001, and I am now in Green Beret Selection. And it's day two, and the colonel pulls us in the classroom, and he says, Men, we're now a nation at war. And nobody believed him because we actually thought it was part of their scenario. And then he said, this is not a scenario. We are now a nation at war. 
and he explained what happened in New York. And everybody wanted to leave, all the Army Rangers and everybody that was with the 82nd Airborne Division, 101st, everybody that wanted to just, hey, my, my unit's going to be deployed. I want to leave. And he said, if you want to be a part of what's going to happen in the next few years, you're in the right place at the right time. So oh. I, I complete an entire 24-day selection process, which is like physically, mentally, and emotionally probably the toughest thing that anyone's ever going to do. And I get all the way to the end. I make it because typically if you're not cutting it, they kick you out. Mm -hmm. But I make it to the end. I make it to the end. I don't know how, but I did. And at the end, I, I have to go to the board and this colonel looks at me and he says, John, we don't think that academically that you'll, you'll, that you'll make it in our course. You know what, you know what he, essentially he was saying to me? And this is, this is what John Arroyo's simple mind said. You're not smart enough. So I said it earlier, I have failed more things than I've ever achieved. And I just believe that I'm not, I'm not a failure. Mm -hmm. Here's the way I look at that. I look at that as God used, he, God didn't cause me to fail, but he used it. And here's how he used it. If I would have succeeded at every single thing the first time at the highest standard, my head wouldn't be able to fit through doors because I would be the best. I would be so self-centered. But you know what failing caused me to do? It caused me to live a humble life and to get grounded and to, and to realize I needed something greater than myself in order to succeed. So a year later, after I was told I wasn't smart enough, I went back and I got selected. I don't know what I did different. And one June 2004, I signed into 3rd Special Forces Group. Absolutely amazing. Wow. What a story. <laughs> what an inspiration to anybody. I mean, absolutely. Congratulations. And, and I mean, just for having the mindset to be able to stick with it to me, um, like you said, you've been pushed down long enough in your life, you know, to be able to have the mindset to stick with it and then to see it through to the end. Um, man, I, I, I applaud you enough. You're, you're, you are the American dream. You're a hero to this country. And, and, uh, like I said, it's, it's an honor for me to be able to, to be on the phone with you right now and, and doing this podcast. Cause it's pretty amazing to hear your story. Well, thanks. Thanks so much. Um, outside of the, I know that you had, uh, some deployments while you were in the military, you did two or two years in Afghanistan and the tour in Iraq. Is there anything from those deployments that you'd like to share? Yeah, two things, and, and I'll share probably from just briefly from um, my experience, you know, early on as a Green Beret. So I show up in 2004 in Afghanistan. Actually, when I signed in the 3rd Special Forces Group, I sit across from my, my sergeant major during my, my in-processing. And, you know, the sergeant major is a senior enlisted advisor to the, to the commander. So this was at the battalion level. And the, I'm sitting across from the sergeant major, and he says, John, you got 15 days to get your family in order because you will be on an aircraft and you will meet us in Afghanistan. And I was like, okay. So I show up in Afghanistan in uh, Bagram. I end up in a special forces detachment, ODA 342, which is uh, in third special forces group, second battalion, uh, second team. This is before they had four numbers. Now they have four numbers. Back then we only had three numbers. So ODA 342. And I end up in Gardez, Afghanistan. And I remember 
the first time I ever had an anxiety attack in my life was in Afghanistan. And, and I think this is, this is important for your listeners to hear. It wasn't because I was going to face the enemy. It wasn't because we were going to go on patrol. It was because I had to face my peers. Hmm. I was more scared of my peers than I was, than I was the enemy. And, and, and it's not because I was threatened or they wanted to shoot me or kill me or hurt me. When you're a young Green Beret in a type A environment, and I'm sure that police officers or any, anyone, you know, uh, any first responders, I'm sure that, you know, there's a lot of type A organizations or, you know, um, and it was like, I didn't want to make a mistake because I didn't want to be called out on it. I never wanted them to ask me a question. And so every morning at 8 a.m., we had a, we had a, a meeting, a team meeting. And I remember every morning I would wake up it was an anxiety attack because I didn't want them to realize how rookie I was and say something or do something wrong. That was my, that was my experience to being on the sports special forces detachment. Over time, I became confident in who I was and my ability and, and that, that went away. And then I remember I'm going to share this and it's kind of, kind of links back on my faith, but my grandmother before I left for Afghanistan gave me this bottle of uh anointing oil you know mm-hmm. and she said she said mijo right in, in california that's you know mexicans uh i'm mexican so my, my grandmother's like mijo i want you to i want you to take this bottle of anointing oil and i want you to put it on everything and i want you to pray well i didn't have a relationship with god or jesus she did what i did is i had a relationship with grandma mm-hmm. and so i believed i believed in grandma so I grabbed this, I grabbed this, I, I did what grandma said. I took her, I took her oil. And I remember before I went on my first operation, you know, as a green beret, I had every weapon system known to man available to me. I can call in bombs. I had sniper rifles. I had uh, 50 cal machine guns, you name it. I had every weapon system, but my weapon of choice was always prayer. It was always that bottle of anointing oil. And I remember going and putting that oil on every vehicle, on every steering wheel, on every weapon system. And you know what I want to say? My team came home with every Special Forces member back without a scratch. And I believe that my grandmother was praying for me, her prayers, and me following through on the assignment that she gave me is actually what, what helped us along the way. And I remember, I remember one of my teammates walks up to me one day and he says, hey, man, I appreciate that you're praying for us, but would you stop? Because no one's shooting at us. And another, and another teammate standing next to him says, what did you just say? That's the dumbest thing. Why would you just want people shooting at us? And he was like, well, we're a bunch of Green Berets, bro. We want to get it on, you know, because we had heard about the other teams that were in the big firefights and taking on the Mongolian horde and you know, going black on ammo and, and all this stuff. And, and we had, we didn't have as much contact as some of these other teams. And this guy wanted to, I mean, he wanted to take on, you know, the Taliban wow. and Al Qaeda. And uh, so anyways, that was 2004, 2005, we go back. We're home for six months and we're already back in Afghanistan. And we are told, expect to go into a hornet's nest. You guys are going into a hornet's nest. And so what did I do? 
I pulled out my weapon of choice. And there in Boggan Merrifield, I began and I began to pray with grandma's oil over all the vehicles. Awesome. And we got a new medic, we got a new medic during that time. And the medic walks up to that guy that asked me not to pray. He said, Hey man, what's he doing? And he said, Bro, just let him go. <laughs> just let him go. We all made it home safe. So that's my experience with uh with combat and war. Wow. Absolutely amazing. I mean, I love that you're yeah, uh, that you're sharing that story in the way that you shared it. It's it's absolutely amazing. Um, wow! So that was that was two tours in Afghanistan. Did you also you also served a tour in Iraq? I did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that tour, it was about four months. The unit was there for about six months, but I was only there for about four. And we did reverse cycle. That was a very uh, direct action. That was a direct action. So we were doing a lot of. Uh, you know, showing up on people's doorsteps and, and taking bad guys out of their house. And so we worked that night. We slept all day and worked all night. And, uh, you know, people ask me all the time, like, so where were you located? Do you know this location? I was like, I don't know, man. All I saw was all, all I saw was palm trees. As I'm sitting on the side of the on the side of the aircraft. I didn't see anything during the day. We didn't go out. We didn't you know, we didn't partner with other organizations. But we were stationed uh, during that time at uh camp liberty which is which is right by um in balad so that's that's really all i could say is is that we did a lot of uh a lot of direct action and you know kicking indoors during that time gotcha and so when did you come back stateside after uh, your third deployment when were you back in the states i got back december of 2007 I, I got out there in september and i got back in december and the unit had been out there since july but i, I kind of met them late Okay, so after 2007, you were stateside since then until uh, the incident that happened at Fort Bragg, huh? Yeah, um, I was still sorry, I was still Bragg. Green Beret. For, yeah, I was still a Green Beret. But what I did is I I moved from a uh, a deployment unit to a stateside team. I actually jumped on a special project team where um, I tested security all over the United States. So, uh, I went to pretty critical infrastructure and I tested the security. And so what I was doing during that time is really just, um, making sure that our infrastructure was secure. And when I was, you know, kind of on a team that was testing our own infrastructure. And so it was great. It was amazing, but it wasn't a combat deployment team. It was more so, uh, local localized. Hmm. Okay. Well, we're going to take a short break, uh, John. When we come back, uh, I hope you would share the uh, the events of April 2nd, 2014. Um, I know that that, uh, like I said, it overshadows probably your entire military career. But that being said, it's uh, it's important that we, we discuss and understand exactly what happened on that day. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to take a short break uh, and we will be right back. This week's Veterans Resource Nonprofit of the Week is Warfighter Advance. Warfighter Advance changes the trajectory of the warfighter's post-deployment life so that rather than an existence characterized by an endless cycle of mental illness diagnosis, medications, medical appointments, and disappointments, the warfighter has a life characterized by pride, productivity, healthy relationships, continued service, and advocacy for the same outcomes for their fellow service members. Our mission is to provide successful reintegration of every warfighter. Our vision is a world where warfighters are fully restored through a non-medical process. Visit www.warfighteradvance.org 
for more information. And we're back with John Arroyo. John, again, thank you for sharing your story with us today. Um, absolutely amazing. Um, we started off the show and we, we talked about the, the seven-minute video uh, on, that was posted on YouTube regarding the story of April 2nd, 2014 uh, at Fort Hood. And uh, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind just kind of pick up from there and talk about uh, what that day was like. Yeah, so it's... You know, there's a lot that was shared there. I'll just kind of hit the the intimate details that that didn't really capture. It was an it was an ordinary day. Uh, I had started work, you know, went in for PT and you know did my did my PT with the soldiers. But during that time, I had started a course. Um, I was I was assigned as the unit movement officer. So like, if we deployed, my job would be to coordinate with the air force and make sure that our equipment was loaded. And so I was going to a course that, um, helped me understood, helped me understand the, the air forces technology, you know, uh, verbiage and how to do load plans. And so I had just started the course that day and the instructor asked, told us, he said, Hey, why don't you go ahead and go to your organizations, get all your property on a CD and then bring it in. And so when we're working on this, our final project, you'll actually be working on your equipment. So when you, and, you know, go back to your units, you guys, you guys will be set up for success. And it was like, okay, so we get out of class about three, four o'clock and I run over to my unit headquarters. And so I was assigned a first medical brigade on Fort Hood. So for some of your listeners that, that know that vicinity, that's where I was, that's who I was assigned to, but not just first medical brigade. I was assigned to their multifunctional medical battalion within the first medical brigade. So I go over to, uh, first medical brigade area and i go to park park my vehicle and i'm trying to hurry up and get into the supply office so i can get all our information on a on a cd so then i can have it for class the next day and so i'm i'm rushing over and i shut the door and i'm like man i gotta hurry up and get in the office before they you know people start leaving for the day and i remember exiting my vehicle and i probably get about i don't know i would say maybe five steps from my vehicle and instantly i hear shots fired and and let me just paint this picture so I'm standing in a parking lot in my brigade footprint into my nine o'clock is the brigade into my 11 and 12 o'clock are the, all the unit buildings. So that's where the soldiers, the different companies. And then to my one o'clock is a road that divides first medical brigade from a transportation unit. And so where I heard the shots fired is to my one o'clock. So I turned my head to my, to the one o'clock where I heard the shots fired and again, I'm in a parking lot. So I see a car pull, pulling, kind of pulling in uh, the parking lot where near I was standing and I see the car and I acknowledge it. But I didn't think that I that I was in any danger. I mean, who uh -huh. thinks that they're on danger on base? Uh -huh. Right. I mean, when I went to work that day, somebody checked my ID card and, and I was behind them. Right. Uh -huh. And so I turn, you know, so I see the vehicle, but I don't think I'm in danger. But something didn't let me keep moving. It, it just like I just I was almost like frozen because I knew that I heard shots fired, but I was trying to discount it. My, my mental capacity was trying to discount and say, oh, it's nothing. They're probably doing funeral detail, you know, training or something. So I I see the vehicle. I see the individual. And but I take my eyes off of him and I turn my head back to the one o'clock where I heard the shots fired. And that I would say probably about a few about five seconds later, I heard another shot. And that's the shot that ripped through my throat. So what I was hearing before I was shot was 
the person that was in the vehicle, his name is Ivan Lopez. He was, what I was hearing is him shooting at everybody he saw coming down that road. And so then he pulls in the parking lot where I'm standing and I turn my head back to where I heard him shooting and he stops, picks up his weapon, gets a beat on me and he, and he fires a 45 caliber from 15 yards and the 45 caliber uh, enters my neck and it hits my jugular vein, goes through my voice box like your Adam's apple and it goes into my right shoulder. So he shot me one time, um, he drove off and I just remember just standing there stunned thinking, was I shot? But the only thing that I really felt, I didn't feel any pain. It just felt like, like someone hit me in the chest with a baseball bat. Like it just sucked all my wind out. And then the evidence of being shot just started to pour out of me and blood, just mass amounts of blood were coming out of my neck. And, you know, I, I want to say this. I'm not saying that people don't live after being shot point blank in the throat with a 45, but I'm sure there's not many. No. Wow. And I turn, I head back. Like I'm trying to get away from him. He drives off. So he, he pulls off, like he just drives away. And I turn heading back to my car and I walk back to my car and I just collapse flat on my face and my life is pouring out and I'm just laying there. And I remember, I remember praying and saying, God, is this where it ends? And God, what happens to my family? And, and I want to say this, and I think that your listeners need to hear this. In the moments that I thought I only had left, you know what I didn't think about? I didn't think about those emails. I was definitely not I was definitely not thinking about those likes that I had been chasing. It wasn't about the career that I was trying to trying to give my wife and see in that moment the only thing I thought about were the people that I sacrificed most and it was my family. I thought about my wife, I thought about my children, who was who was going to care for my children. You know, but before that time I was, I was on that orphan uh, trajectory and I was trying to give my family, I was trying to give them something that they never asked me for. And I remember telling my wife, hold on, honey, if just, I'm going to do this and then we'll have more time together. I'm going to do that and we're going to have more time together. Honey, I'm doing this so I can give you this life. I'm going to give you this life that you never even asked me for. I'm going to try to give our kids this life that they never asked me for mm -hmm. when all they ever asked me for was me but I was too busy trying to give them something that they didn't ask me for that really I just needed affirmation and it all, it all stemmed back because I never got it at home for my dad. Wow. And I want to say this, I want to say this before I move on. Uh, I think it's important when I was going to Afghanistan and Iraq and coming back, um, I wasn't a meth addict, but I was a heavy drinker. I was a heavy drinker. When I was in the 82nd Airborne Division, they told us that we were the most physically fit alcoholics. And when I became a Green Beret, um, I wouldn't say we were alcoholics, but I, I, did a, I did a good fair drinking. But this time, I brought my wife with me on this trip. And I said, hey, you want to hang with me? You drink some of that. You, dr you drink, you grab one of them cold ones. And it wasn't soda pop. And so during that time, I was coming back. My wife said, when you would deploy, I'd, I wouldn't know who was coming back. You were just so mean. You were just so angry. And I remember my wife and my kids, they couldn't, 
they weren't good enough for me. They couldn't do it enough. They, my wife walked on eggshells. And during that time, when I was angry and mean, and I didn't beat my family. Mm-hmm. Oh, but I cut, I cut them down with my tongue. Oh, I can, oh, I can give it to them. You know, people say sticks and stones don't break your bones, but words that never hurt you. Oh, words, words wound you. They wound your soul mm-hmm. and they'll stick with you. And during that time, 2007, 2008, my wife attempted suicide twice. My wife is a two-time suicide survivor. God, I'm telling you, God didn't only save me from an active shooter. He saved me from me, and he also saved my wife from me. Wow. And so here I am on the ground. My life is pouring out. I'm thinking about my family that I sacrificed the most. And I, all of a sudden, I hear this audible voice. It didn't come from outside. It came from inside of me. And it said this, John, get up or your wife is going to die. And I'm like, I remember hearing that, but I shrugged it off because I didn't know what I was hearing at the time. And I didn't really, you know, I was just freaking out and, and just praying. And then I hear it again, but this time more stern, John, get up or your wife is going to die. You know, I think if we were to go into the house of some of your listeners and open the door, we would actually see what's going on behind closed doors in their home. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you what was going on in my home. Six months before I was shot, when my wife and I transitioned from Fort Bragg, North Carolina to Fort Hood, when I finished that officer school and then we got ready to transition, the day that I graduated from officer school, which is late September, my mother-in-law died of an unexpected aneurysm. Nine days later, my father-in-law dies of cancer. Two years, two years before that, my brother-in-law dies in a hunting accident where my father-in-law loads his gun, sets it down, and the gun goes off on its own, hits my brother-in-law on the hip. He says, I'm hit, never says another word. He dies in my father-in-law's arm. So my wife had lost her brother two years before, six months before I'm shot. Her mother and her father die nine days apart, and now I'm on the ground bleeding out. And essentially... What Jesus was telling me was, if you don't get up off the ground, your wife is not going to miss this time. She's going to take her life. Wow. <laughs> so I get up off the ground. I grab my throat. Well, let me say this. You know, it was easier to die that day. And I think your listeners need to hear this. It was easier for me to die that day. Mm-hmm. I could I could have just stayed on the ground, right? Because this is what we do. How could you, I mean, this is, this is a make a makeup conversation between me and God. How could you be asking me to get up? Don't you see the mass amounts of blood pouring out of my neck? I mean, would, if you went to WebMD right now, they would say that I'm dying. So how could you be asking me to get up? You know, and this is the other thing. I would have, they would have told my wife, Angel, uh, John never had a chance. Don't worry, honey. He he felt no pain. That bullet hit him directly in the throat, and he was out before he hit the ground. Mm-hmm. But let me say this. Let me say this. I would have known. Yeah. Because wherever wherever I would have ended up next, I definitely know that I would have ended up in front of God. I know that. And he would have said this. I gave you an opportunity to live for your family. I gave you an opportunity so that your family would live. And I didn't save you for just for you. I saved you for others. And isn't that the isn't that the mission of the Green Beret? Deo Presso Liber, which means free the oppressed. 
right? It, it, isn't that why we went to go free the oppressed? And so here I am on the ground. And if I could, I could have laid there and God would have said, I gave you an opportunity to live so that your family would live. But now you chose not to. And let me show you what just happened to your family. Your wife just took her life. Now your children are next. I mean, that's, that's what I would probably expect to hear if I would have chose to stay on the ground, but I didn't. I obeyed that voice that told me to get up. I get up off the ground. I grab my throat with my left hand because my right hand is not working anymore. The bullet damaged my nerves. And I just start stumbling. I'm walking. I'm just like looking for help. And it's four o'clock in the afternoon and on a base that holds thousands of soldiers. And it should be a beehive moving of people just moving around. And there's only one soldier walking towards me from a distance. And I'm just trying to get to this soldier. And I'm like, man, like if I just get to him, I'm going to get help. I'm going to get help. And I remember I get 10 feet in front from this guy and we're on the same path. We're right in front of the doors to the brigade of first medical brigade. And I stop because there's something about his demeanor that just is not right. And he's very frantic and his head's on a swivel and he's looking around and he stops and I stop. And I'm standing in front of the guy that just shot me. Really? He shot me from his, he shot me from his car, drove off, got out of his car, looking for more people to shoot. Now I'm standing face to face. And I just remember saying like, how am I going to get away from this guy? There's no way. Like, and I just stood there frozen. And I just, the only thing I can tell you is he looked straight at me, looked to the left and right, looked for more people and turned and walked away, walked in the brigade, shot three more people, walked out the back and shot himself. That day he shot 19 of us. And this is what I'll tell you. The moment I was obedient to Jesus, he blinded that guy from seeing me. And I'm here today because I got up. Wow. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's absolutely amazing. I mean, what an incredible story. Well, and the 700 club, you know, they got only a few minutes to try to capture as much as they can. And, and uh, they did a phenomenal job, but those are some of the intricate details that you only get in, in, either unless you hear it from me or you read the book. Mm-hmm. And what is that book, just so our listeners know? Yeah, that's that's a attacked at home, um, a Green Beret survival story of the Fort Hood shooting. It's it's attacked at home. We actually wrote another book, a second. It's a it's a companion book, and it's more of like a devotional. And, and here's why: because there's so many people that need hope right now, and people hear our story and they're like, "Oh my goodness, like this is a miraculous story!" Like, and then they go home and they say, "Well, what about me?" What about my life? What about my marriage? What about my husband? What about my wife? What about my children? Where has God been in my life? I understand that John had his grandmother's faith and, and all these miraculous things, but that's good for him. But what about me? And so what we did is we wrote we, our companion pieces actually called Open Their Eyes. And we're, we're, at, we're actually asking God through these pages and through little short vignette stories and we're saying, God, now show them where you've been all along in our life. We don't have enough time today, but I can go back and I can see all the miraculous things that were happening in my life leading up to leading up to April 2nd. And after I can see God's fingerprint 
all over and all the puzzle pieces he was doing and moving in order to be with me. And I'll say this. I remember having a lot of questions and I'm sure a lot of people did too, because they were like, Oh my goodness, second mass shooting on Fort hood. Like how could this be? I mean, 19 people shot, four people were dead. Where's God? I mean, how could, Oh my goodness. I could tell you where he was in the midst of chaos, in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of death. Oh, I know where he was. He was speaking to me audibly in my ear and telling me to get up. And you know what? I wasn't good enough for him. I wasn't good enough to to keep his, you know, people think you have to work for him. I failed almost everything. I was an ex-gang member, drug addict, alcoholic, you name it. And I remember thinking to myself, how could you have saved me? You knew who I was. You knew me. You know me better than me. And he said, John, I didn't give you what you deserved. I gave you what my son paid for. Now go give it to the rest of the world. Go introduce my son to the world because I want to do the same for them. Wow. Absolutely amazing. That's where I'm at right now. Well, John, I don't even know what to say. I mean, that that shook me to the core, but um, thank you for sharing that and the way that you share it and the way you articulate it is I don't know. It's almost incomprehensible to tell you the truth. And uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to take a short break, um, collect my thoughts. But um, I'd like to hear, um, you know, what is life like after, um, you know, after something like this? Um, Yeah. I'm going to just take a quick short break. Just one minute here. Um, Yeah. This week's Veterans Resource Nonprofit of the Week is Warfighter Advance. Warfighter Advance changes the trajectory of the warfighter's post-deployment life so that rather than an existence characterized by an endless cycle of mental illness diagnosis, medications, medical appointments, and disappointments, the warfighter has a life characterized by pride, productivity, healthy relationships, continued service, and advocacy for the same outcomes for their fellow service members. Our mission is to provide successful reintegration of every warfighter. Our vision is a world where warfighters are fully restored through a non-medical process. Visit www.warfighteradvance.org for more information. Well, John, welcome back. Uh, Again, thank you for sharing your incredible story with us. Uh, I just needed a few minutes to collect my own thoughts because, I mean, literally, you know, you paint this picture that is absolutely amazing. And if, if uh, I, I don't know, as a listener, I don't think it's even possible for you not to be able to paint the picture that you just explained and uh, and what you had been through and, and how and why. And, uh, I mean, I just can't, I can't imagine. I mean, it's, uh, it's yeah, it's pretty amazing. And, and this happened in 2014, and I know that uh, you didn't uh, get out of the military until November of 2018. So it was four years after that. Um, can you share what life has been like since that day? Yes, um, a lot of uh, a lot of finding out who I really am <laughs> um, as an individual, as a father, as a husband. After I was broken. Um, I just felt like God was putting me back together and he said, well, 
since you're broken, we might as well just fix everything, all the broken pieces. Uh, and he started with my family. And he bring he started to bring restoration between me and my kids and in a deeper and a more intimate relationship relationship between my wife and I. And and then, you know, it took me it's taken me years to physically recover. I was, you know, had a trach in my neck for months. They said I would never speak again. They said I'd never use my arm again. And so all those things, you know, even though I had a miracle happen in my life, I still had to persevere every day beyond that. And, you know, then the other thing is, and I think your listeners need to hear this, is that I didn't take on the identity of my disability. I lost the use of my right arm. I almost wasn't able to finish my career, but I didn't let that disability become my identity. I kept fighting. I kept getting up. When when God told me to get up on April 2nd, that word was still very much alive. And, and there were days after my injury that I felt despair, depressed, stressed. You know, my career was on the was on the uprise. I was going from enlisted to officer and I was going to go to the Fortune 500 world and I was going to make big money because, you know, I'm this former Green Beret that became Army officer and, and I was going to conquer the world. Now, here I am and I can't speak and I don't have the use of my right arm and I got a tube in my throat and I got a feeding tube and, man, like, that didn't look like God. That looked like destruction. Every, you know, then losing my in-laws and my wife not having parents and, Man, any, everything and anything that could have been utterly shaken or broken that wasn't like nailed to the floor was utterly shaken in my life, in our life. Wow. And for a long time, we just had to, there were some days the, the only thing that we could do was just wake up that day. That was the victory. Just waking up that day. Some days, some days that was the victory. And then maybe we would see some advance so I, I would see some progress in my arm. Yeah, I got my voice back. Um, I, I began to get some movement in my arm. I ended up becoming an aide to a two-star general. Uh, that's how I ended up finishing my career. And God allowed me to, to retire. And then I get out of the military. And I just, I, I joined a ministry. Um, I went on staff with the ministry of a man named Dave Reaver. Many people know him. He's a Vietnam vet that was uh, that was injured in 1969, and and he's used his scars like the same way that that I am now is just bringing hope and healing to a broken world. And uh, I spent four years on staff with him, and I just transitioned uh, January 1st out of out of his ministry, and we're we're on our own now. So now what we're doing is just looking to find balance with family with the rest and with ministry and we're looking to just continue to bring hope and healing to a broken world. Well, that's amazing. And how does someone get in touch with you? If we've got listeners, whether it's a veteran, a family member um, that relates to this story and, and absolutely wants to find the, the same faith and hope and healing, and maybe they are broken. Maybe they do need a little bit of guidance in their life. Uh, how do they get in touch with you? They can go to info at attackedathome.com. Info at attackedathome.com. I'm also on LinkedIn and I'm also on Facebook. You can go to, John, you know, find me on LinkedIn, uh, John Arroyo, and on Facebook, John Arroyo, A-R-R-O-Y-O. Um, and my website is getupwithjohn.com. 
getupwithjohn.com. Great. Now I'll make sure that we put those uh, in in the um, the description of the podcast also, so that anyone who's listening could go to the description and also get all that information. But I'm not done quite with you yet, there, John. I want to I want to talk uh, a little bit about um, post traumatic stress and uh, the effects. Uh, we know that the the shooter at Fort Hood um, had been diagnosed with post traumatic stress. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and and as a man of faith. Um, what are your feelings towards him? I had to forgive him. So in order for me to move forward, I had to forgive him. And I know a lot of people were like, how could you do that? That man shot you in the throat. And believe me, I had the same conversation with God, mm-hmm. but he was dead. So who was going to bear the burden of this? Me. So in a conversation with, with God, God said, in order for you to heal, to begin healing emotionally, not just not physically, you're already healing physically, but the wounds that are that are in you emotionally, um, you have to forgive him. And I was like, how could you ask me to do that? Like, don't you don't, you were there? You saw what he did to me. And he said, the forgiveness is not between you and him, John. It's between me and you. Hmm. You're forgiving through obedience. That's what I ask you to do. And when you forgive, you take the burden off you and you give it to me. And then you can start living your life again. And so that's what I did. I forgave Ivan Lopez and I released him of the debt and I began living again. And actually, I hope that I could find his family sometime. And because I know that he had children. I don't know much about his life, but I know that he had children. And I often wonder, you know, I actually say this. You know, there wasn't 20 victims that day because he shot 19 of us and then he be, he shot himself. So he became victim 20. Um, but I believe that there were 21 victims. I believe the family, especially Ivan Lopez, were victims because did he hug his kids? Did he drop his kids off at school that day? Did he have breakfast with them or did he slap them? Did he, you know, what happened? But whatever the case was, daddy never came home. And so, you know what? Those kids are living a life like me. And so I really wish that sometime I could find the family of Ivan Lopez and say, I forgive you. And I don't ever want you to carry the burden that I, that, uh, that we hate you. I can't speak for the other families and those others that were wounded and those that lost their life, but I can speak for John and Angel Arroyo. And we say, we love you. And that's how I've been able to heal. And that's how I dealt with him. That's incredible. Absolutely incredible. I mean, um, so I get to interview, you know, quite a few veterans as it relates to the TV show and also now on the podcast. But uh, that being said, we talk uh, at length and in detail about post-traumatic stress and the effects that it has, not only physically, but mentally on the brains and things like that. And and then also on the loved ones around you. And um Many of the men and women that I've talked to, um, there's a gentleman that I interviewed uh, in my first season of my TV show who uh, blacked out on an airplane and uh, took on uh, an air marshal and a flight attendant and has no recollection of it whatsoever, right? Um, the the effects of war, the effects of childhood, um, and you're a, a great advocate to this. I mean, you know, yeah, 
combat is absolutely horrendous in some instances, uh, you know, there, and, but there's, there's a lot of deep rooted trauma as it relates to childhood and all the way through our lives. We're all affected by trauma and how we process things is, is a little bit different, but, um, I guess we didn't walk a day in this man's shoes, so we can't, uh, it's easy for us to cast judgment as, uh, civilians. We do it all the time, right? I mean, we do it on almost on a daily basis. You know, you go out someplace and, uh, there's a screaming kid in a restaurant and you want to f- immediately criticize the family or the parents or something like that. I mean, and I'm guilty of it myself. I'm, I'm not sitting here thinking I'm holier than thou, but, um, I always try to, to take one step back and, and say, I've, I've never walked a day in that individual's shoes. I don't know what they've been through. Um, obviously this young man or the soldier, uh, had some issues as it relates to PTS. It's certainly not an excuse by any means, but, um, you know, I, I pray for him and his family. Uh, and then I also say that I, I pray for you and, and your struggles. I mean, I, I have to believe that there's mass amounts of trauma that were associated with, not only the shooting, but let's back up to your two deployments in Afghanistan, your deployment in Iraq. I mean, the the struggles that you had losing your your father at five years old and, and never getting any affirmations and being in a gang. I mean, the trauma goes on and on and on. And and how were you able to uh, cope with John Arroyo? How were you able to get out of your own head and find the peace and solitude that you deserved? Um, first of all, I leaned on my faith. And I leaned on something greater than me, right? And I couldn't lean on my wife during that time because she was broken, even just as broken as I was. Mm-hmm. So we we made we made our faith in Jesus our foundation, and then beyond that, we actually let people help us. You know, as a Green Beret, that's I mean that's that's tough because you're used to being the giver, not the receiver. And to and and then you also have to be vulnerable and admit that you need help mm-hmm. and that we did and here's what people don't realize is that if you're helping the veteran that stuff that they're going through oh believe me it's spilled in the home if they have if they have a wife and children it's spilled in the home mm-hmm. and so you need to bring hope and healing to the entire family not just the veteran and so when i began to you know when i began to go through the process there at brook army medical center in san antonio of of recovery i saw every counselor i mean you tell me i'll tell you what i mean you go through a mass shooting you're gonna you're gonna see them and i i want to say the one of the greatest um things that happened to me was one i stopped i didn't isolate I didn't drink alcohol anymore. I, so the moment I got up off the ground, I, n- I had never taken a sip again of alcohol. Wow. And here's why. Because I, re- I know what God did for me. And I never want to, I don't want to smear the sacrifice that he gave me, the, the miracle. I, I, I don't want to smear it. And so I never drink an alcohol again. I don't isolate and when I'm when I was with my counselors and I was there in those rooms with those psychologists and counselors, I began to tell them, give them answers to questions that they weren't asking me. So you know, because here you said it, all the things in my life that were that were trauma producing, right? Even even maybe not just physically, but emotionally. Uh, there were wounds. When someone gets wounded, 
what people don't realize and what counselors don't realize is that when you're broken, everything comes to the surface. Everything you never dealt with, everything that you just try to stick in a rucksack and, and put away, it all comes to the surface. And so what happens is those counselors and those psychologists, they think that they're treating the thing that happened in Afghanistan or Iraq, but they're not. What they're treating is the trauma that you had because daddy wasn't there in your life or because daddy slapped you or because you were molested. That is what comes to the surface. And you sometimes you don't even realize it because you've hidden it for so long and you never wanted that door to open. The problem is you don't have the ability to keep that door shut. And when you get broken, it all, it all comes out. And so I, I allowed them to help me. And I began to tell them, give them answers to questions that they weren't asking. And that's how I, so it, I leaned on my faith and then I let, I let the system and I let the people that wanted to help me help me. Yeah. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. You, you gotta, you leaned on your faith first and foremost. You, you'd obviously you'd seen the, the, the things that God could do for you throughout your entire life. Right. I mean, leading mm-hmm. up to the Fort Hood shooting and then, of course, that day that you laid on the ground and uh, and then right after that, right? I mean, and, and that's that's pretty amazing. But I mean, to the, the, the physical aspect set aside, the mental wounds, I just can't imagine, um, you know, having to wake up every single day. And like you said, um, some days the victory was just putting your feet on the ground and getting out of bed. And, and that was a victory. And uh, mm-hmm. man, that's, I mean, that's powerful stuff right there. And that's, you know, Unfortunately, um, there may or may not be someone listening to this podcast where that's a victory for them too, um, right? They, they may not have had the exact struggles that you and I have had in our lifetimes, but they've had their own demons, their own struggles. And um, maybe today's the day that they want to uh, to change that. And maybe today's the day that they want to make that different. And, um, you know, there are organizations out there, faith-based healing organizations, uh, organizations like you and Dr. Janelle Royster, um, became familiar with with uh, uh, you know the different forms of TRP healing, TRIP healing, that type of thing. It's amazing what's out there if you look for it, right? Yes, yes, yes. And and I, I have often tell people if you don't get recovery, it's not because it wasn't available. It's because you didn't seek it out or you didn't receive it. Mm-hmm. There's there's hundreds of organizations of men and women who are selfless and want to help you. You're one of them. Look what you're doing. You're, you're allowing me to share my experience. One, it brings freedom to me. When I share my story, it's almost like, like I'm unloading some weight, right? It's, it's a, it's an opportunity for me to share my story and offload any burdens or anything like that. But also it's an opportunity for someone to grab on some hope. Those listeners, Amen. And so you're using, you're doing the same thing. This is your gift. And there's so many organizations out there that are doing the same thing and they do it in a various ways. It all looks different, but there's so many organizations that are out there that want to help you. And there's faith-based organizations that are legit, that are legit. And um, where I met Dr. Royster was at one of those organizations. That's awesome. Um I know there's an organization that's probably near and dear to your heart because they stepped up after um, after your your shooting. And um, let's discuss real quick Operation Finally Home and Lennar Homes. Um, how did that organization change your life? Oh wow! 
you know, transition is a scariest thing for military soldiers. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, it is absolutely scary. And when you're going through transition in the, from the military into back into civilian life, you feel like you're the only person that's ever done it in life. I mean, you feel like you're alone. And during when I was in transition, I began to speak. Uh, I applied to Operation Finally Home. And uh, when I exited, I did the application. I applied and I got accepted to to a home program. And let me tell you something. You want to talk about taking burdens off, off people or shoulders, <sighs> helping helping a veteran that is not sure how he's going to work because he's only got the use of one arm. You know, will he will he be able to um, bring security to his family uh, when you when you take that burden off his shoulders with a mortgage free home? I mean, I'm just going to tell you, that's victory every day, every day. And that's what they did for me. Wow. So they built you a custom home uh, based on your needs, your new physical needs, right? Because you, you had lost movement in an arm or at least use of partial use of your arm, which you've, you've since recovered, you stated. But um, it, it was able to help you on, on the physical disabilities uh, after the shooting. Is that pretty accurate? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And And my arm is probably functions at 30% of what it should. And so, although I, although I, it's there and I can move it around, it's not, it's, it's not to the place uh, where I'm completely healed or whole, but I'll say this. um, Yes. Lenar homes and and operation finally home came together and built me a home that met the needs of what my disability uh, required. And for, for me, yeah. That's that's amazing. And again, we can't say thank you to the organizations out there that are supporting our U.S. military veterans and their families, uh, organizations like Operation Finally Home and Lenar Homes and the countless other ones that are out there just uh, making tomorrow better than today for our veterans. It's uh, I, I mean, I know it's cliche ish to say that, you know, how important it is. But, man, at the core, here's here's somebody who's delivering a message that's telling you it's absolutely uh it makes a huge difference. And so again, I, I, I can't say thank you enough for, uh, for sharing your story with us, but that being said, I, I want to know what would you say to a veteran or a family member that's listening that might be struggling with post-traumatic stress today and, uh, wants to find that hope and is willing to, to go about getting it. I'm going to give them the same words that I heard. Get up. I want to share that message. Get up. If that means just putting your feet on the floor tomorrow is victory get up. If that means that you need to go seek counsel, um, get up. If that means that you need to go into a hospital and, and, you know, get a bit more care, get up. If that means restoring your family, putting the drink down, get up. And so what I want to share with them is get up and we love you. We love you so much. This story isn't about, you know, isn't about me, but I was saved to save others and you're loved, and somebody wants to help you, all you need to do is ask for it or let them help you. Amen to that. Amen to that, John. I, John, I know you, I, I believe in doing my research, you're also a motivational speaker, and I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, talk about that just briefly as we close up the uh, the, the segment of the podcast. Um, if someone wanted to hire you to come speak, um, how would they go about doing that? Uh, same thing. Just go to info at attackthathome.com. And um, they can reach out there. So info at attack that home and they go to our website and somebody will filter through and get it to me or 
uh, and some will be in contact with them. Perfect. Um, any party and, words? And then I do it in all sorts of ways. And I do speak it in all in all fields. So it could be a resiliency message uh, to a business, to um, schools, public schools. You know, so it. You know, I can I could speak in all sorts of settings. And my parting words would just be, "Hey, I love you." And I'm glad that I had this opportunity. It's actually an honor for me to be in your home rather than for you to hear me. Amen to that, John. Thank you so much for for sharing your story with us today. Um, I'm going to close the show by talking life's a journey and sometimes life can be a struggle, as John very well knows. But there's always something, someone, God, (laughs) somebody out there to want to help you. Uh, Post-traumatic stress, it's a silent killer, but there are ways of healing. And there, again, there's organizations, people, uh, places out there that want to help you. So uh, please find the help. Go out online, do the the research, get up, as John would say. If you'd like more information about today's podcast, please visit our website at operationhealingheroes.org. And until next week, when we talk to another veteran, I want to say thanks again to John Arroyo for sharing his story with us and uh, keep the good fight going. Love you guys. This week's Veterans Resource Nonprofit of the Week is Warfighter Advance. Warfighter Advance changes the trajectory of the warfighter's post-deployment life so that rather than an existence characterized by an endless cycle of mental illness diagnosis, medications, medical appointments, and disappointments, the warfighter has a life characterized by pride, productivity, healthy relationships, continued service, and advocacy for the same outcomes for their fellow service members. Our mission is to provide successful reintegration of every warfighter. Our vision is a world where warfighters are fully restored through a non-medical process. Visit www.warfighteradvance.org for more information. Operation Healing Heroes podcast is made possible by Sure Microphones, the leader in audio electronics since 1925. Visit them at www.sure.com and by Great Clips, the world's largest salon brand with over 4,400 locations in the U.S. and Canada. Great Clips, it's gonna be great.